0: Now, this morning we're going to finish Romans chapter 11, and that's going to be a break point after this morning's message. I'm going to go into a three-part mini-series on gifts we can give back to God, starting next Sunday, three-week series. We're taking a break from Romans because at the end of Romans 11 is a natural break, Romans 1 to 11 covers doctrine. Romans chapters 12 through 16 covers duty or response to doctrine, Christian living. So we're going to take a break after this sermon for three weeks and look at gifts we can give back to God. I hope you won't miss any in that series. But to finish off Romans chapter 11, let me say this. One thing that's to be faced is that being a Jew no longer has the same spiritual advantage over being a Gentile that it once had. Maybe I could illustrate. The Jew no longer has the same spiritual advantage over the Gentile that once was had. In fact, today it is even more difficult for a Jewish person to understand salvation because of his blindness. What we would think as of an advantage, being a Jew, is in fact has become a weakness. Robert Wadlow, listed in the Guinness Book of Records as the world's tallest man, was over eight feet tall. He had a glandular condition. You would think that it would give him a big advantage in many areas of life, such as basketball and helping his wife for something on the shelf of the pantry. But the truth was that he was very clumsy and he was very awkward. He was very susceptible to infections. And he actually died from a simple scratch on his foot, which didn't heal. You see, that which may appear to be an asset often can become a weakness. And today, it is more difficult for a precious Jewish person to understand salvation because of spiritual blindness. Romans eleven, eleven to 24, last week's text was titled, Purposeful Rejection. And this morning's sermon on verses 25 to 36 is titled, Planned Temporary Rejection. Planned Temporary Rejection. Now, relative to the passage for last week, relative to verses 11 to 24, the nation of Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ is purposeful in that it makes Jews jealous for salvation blessings, and it allows believing Jews to be grafted into the olive tree, which was originally exclusively Jewish. Now, moving forward with this same argument relative to this morning's verses of 25 to 36. Listen, the nation of Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ is planned rejection and temporary rejection because it will one day only be until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in to salvation. I see that in the latter part of verse 25. For I do not want you... To be, uh, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and this planned and temporary rejection by Jews of Jesus, it will make plain the superior ways of God. Verses thirty three to thirty six in our passage are going to show us that. So there are four questions that the text raises and that the text answers. Four questions. What are they? Number one, when will Israel's blindness end? Two, who will end Israel's blindness? Three, why will Israel's blindness be removed? And four, what was the purpose of Israel's blindness? There is a Magazine that I received for many years from Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, uh, and it's a ter- tremendous magazine. And in one of the articles, some years back, we read this: A number of years ago, the late Ben David Ben Gurion, first Prime Minister of Israel, received a letter from Dr. William Culbertson of the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. After thanking Mr. Ben-Gurion for meeting with him during his stay in Israel, Dr. Culbertson wrote these words, and I quote, Our visit to Israel was very wonderful. I continue to marvel at the initiative, the industry, and the utter devotion of the people to work, to the work of rebuilding Israel. It is a source of inspiration indeed. Some of us, of course, believe that this could well be the prelude to what the Old Testament prophets predicted. You manifested such a complete grasp of the religious side of the matter that I am sure that you know some of us do believe in a personal Messiah and that there are days of great glory awaiting your nation, Israel." End of quote from Culbertson, continuing with the article. David Ben-Gurion isn't the only one in history who had to be told of the glorious future awaiting the Jewish people. The predominantly Gentile church at Rome also lacked understanding of God's plan to save and to restore Israel to a place of privileged blessing. Their ignorance, however, led to an attitude of superiority over the unbelieving Jewish people. So let's tackle these questions I've just mentioned and overviewed, the four questions. Start with question one with me. When will Israel's blindness end? When will Israel's blindness end? Let's turn our eyes to verse 25 of Romans chapter 11. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What is going on here are some key words in this one verse, 25. And these are four key words in one verse 25. The first word is mystery. When you see the word mystery in the scriptures, it's not a it, It's not a Columbo situation. A mystery in the scriptures is a once hidden thing that some, ha, somehow has been previously undisclosed in scripture, but has always been in the purpose, in the counsel, and the plan of God. That's a mystery. The second word in verse 25 is hardening. This is a spiritual blindness, spiritual eyes covered over by calluses, dulled, visually dulled perceptions of a blunted mind. That's hardening. And then word three, partial, word four, until. Word three, partial, (laughs) word four, until. This means that this blinding of Israel is incomplete, it's not total, it's temporary, and it will end. And so the Jewish people's rejection of Jesus and his salvation is an incomplete rejection. There are Jews coming to Christ even while I'm preaching. And it's a temporary rejection in that that rejection will eventually end in the plan and workings of God. You know, when you have a typical eye exam, The doctor puts something drops into your eyes and they're left there until the eyes um, are very sensitive to light and quite blurry in their vision. But eventually these side effects pass when the eye pupils stop being dilated. And so when the eye doctor puts drops in your eyes for a reason, it's a partial eyesight you have. It's a hardening until the drops wear off. And so the question becomes, until what? When will the partial Jewish hardness toward Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace cease? Until what? What are we waiting for that's going to take away the partial purposeful blinding of the Jews? Verse 25, second half, I'll read the whole verse. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until, watch it, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When the fullness of the Gentiles come into salvation, the partial, blinding, hardening of the Jews against the gospel of Jesus Christ will be removed. Israel will stop being partially hardened to Jesus and to his gospel when the full number of the Gentiles has come into God's salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Now listen, put another way, when the complete number of elect to salvation Gentiles comes to faith in Christ for salvation, then the Jewish spiritual blurriness Clears away. Put another way, when the last elect Gentile of the whole church age gets saved, then Israel's national spiritual temporary purposeful blindness ceases. Won't that be a day? Won't that be a day? Wouldn't it be something if the last elect Gentile in the globe lives in Dallas? Wouldn't it be something if the last elect Gentile for the church age is your next door neighbor? What would be the joy as you share Christ with your next door neighbor over the fence and he trusts Christ to be salvation, and boom, that's the last Gentile elect to salvation in the whole church age for the whole world, and Jewish blindness peels away? <laughs> that's better than Super Bowl. That's better than Bahamar starting opening. That's better than anything. <laughs> I'm telling you what. On we go to verses 26 through 27a. You with me? And thus all Israel will be saved just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This brings us to the second question of the text that the text is going to answer. The second question is, who will end Israel's blindness? Who will end Israel's blindness? And what does it mean when it says in verse 26, and thus all Israel will be saved? What does that mean? Does that mean that every Jew that's ever been born will be saved and in heaven? No, it doesn't mean that. If you hold your places with me in Romans 11 and turn back to the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, you may need your table of contents to find old Zech, but uh, go with me to Zechariah and also it may be up on the screen which saves your table of contents wear and tear. Um, So please hold your places in Romans 11 and turn back to the book of Zechariah. Now listen to this prophecy of Zechariah from God to Judah. This is what Zechariah the prophet as recorded in chapter 13 verses 8 and 9 wrote. It will come about Then in all the land declares the Lord that two parts will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as, a, as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Now listen, what's going on here is that although Romans eleven twenty six through 27a quotes Isaiah 59, verses 20 to 21, the prediction of Zechariah 13, eight and 9, which I just read, is the most helpful, to our understanding, and Zechariah thirteen eight announces that two thirds of the Jewish worldwide population on Earth at the time of the future seven year tribulation will die. The judgments, the, the pestilence, the punishments of God after the rapture of the church, as the seven years of tribulation ensue, it says that uh, two thirds of the Jews that are alive on earth when that all unfolds will die. That is very sad. The tribulation horrors of the Antichrist anti-Semitism and satanic persecution and natural catastrophes and unprecedented demonic activities will all conspire to kill two-thirds of the world's Jews who are alive at the dawning of the tribulation. Nonetheless, that being said, one third of a Jew's population at that terrible time will survive. And this is called the remnant, which, we'll have, which we've seen earlier in chapter 11 of Romans. So two thirds of the Jews are going to die in the tribulation. One third is going to be brought through as the remnant of God through the entire tribulation and physically live. God will spare this remnant, this one third. God will protect them. God will preserve them. God will also save them from their sins as they turn to Yeshua Messiah as Lord and Savior in that future time of tribulation. Verse 27, Romans 11. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And why will the Lord spare them, protect them, preserve them, save them from their sins? to save them from their sins by the salvation which the Lord Jesus won for them on the cross. I'm still in Zechariah 13. I hope I didn't take you away from there too fast. Zechariah 13, verse 9. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested, and they will call upon my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Now, going back to chapter 11 of Romans, is specifically verse 26. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And so all Israel will be saved means that all of the surviving remnant, which amounts to one-third of the Jews alive at the start of the tribulation, will be saved. Physically, they'll be saved. But more importantly, spiritually, they'll be saved from sin's penalty, pleasure, power, and presence like we are. So let me review. The second question is, who will end Israel's blindness? And the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. He will end Israel's spiritual blindness. And he will do so, commencing with the rapture of the church and then in an ongoing way through the latter part of the seven years of tribulation and before the start of the thousand-year millennial kingdom of Christ. Now, in Zechariah the prophet, we read chapter 13. I want to read you another prophetic writing of the same prophet Zechariah in chapter 12. And I want to read verse 10. Listen. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit, that's a capital S, the Spirit of Grace and Supplication, so that they will look on me, this is Messiah, whom they have pierced. A crucifixion was not invented by the Phoenicians until centuries after Zechariah made this prediction of piercing. And so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And so the church, next event of prophetic history is the church is airlifted out of planet earth and then a spiritual veil over the eyes of the Jews begins to be pulled off by God over a seven-year period we call the tribulation. And the wonderful news, the result is that 100% of the Jews who survive to the end of the horrific tribulation will turn to Jesus Christ in faith and they are gloriously and graciously saved from their sins by God. That's how powerful God is. That's how loving God is. That's how pre-planning God is in his nature. That is how proactive God is, not reactive. Let me go to the third question. Why will Israel's blindness be removed? Why will Israel's blindness be removed? Verse 27 tells us, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Israel's blindness will be removed by Jesus Christ because the Lord is in the unconditional binding covenant business. God is in the unconditional binding covenant business with the Jews, but here's the other thing. He's also in that kind of a covenant with us, the church. And so when we come to the communion table and we say, Jesus' words, this is the new covenant in my blood, The same principle of covenant to the church of Jesus Christ, that it is unconditional, that it is binding, is the same notion of the covenants that God has struck with Israel in the Old Testament. All of the covenants God has struck with Israel except one, these covenants are unconditional and binding covenants. You say, what's the only conditional covenant of the Old Testament? The Mosaic Covenant, the law. God said to the Jews, if you obey the law, I will bless you. If you disobey the law, I will curse you. But that's the only conditional covenant of all the covenants that God gave to Israel. So I want to take you to another Old Testament prophet, a prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31. Uh, verses 31 to 34 you know how I remember this Baskin-Robbins 31 flavors Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 31 and l- the Lord knows I've eaten my fair share of Baskin-Robbins ice cream Jeremiah 31 31 to 34 again Centuries before Christ. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But, but is one of the most important words of the Bible. When you see a but, things are changing around 180 degrees. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. What I'm going to read next is called the New Covenant. The New Covenant. God says, I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor uh, and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. They will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, and I will remember no more. The God who's incapable of remembering everything says he'll forget sin. That's grace. That's mercy. That's hope. And so we move on to verse 28. In Romans 11, I know I'm taking you all over the acreage here of the God's word, but I hope you're sticking with me. We move on to verse 28 of Romans 11, and we come to verse 28, I think two familiar sayings are in play. There are two sides to every story, and don't judge a book by its cover. There are two sides to every story, and don't judge a book by its cover. Now I want to read verse 28 of Romans 11. For from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. This verse is saying that with respect to the gospel, currently, unbelieving Jews are believing Gentiles' enemies. But with respect to God's election from the foundation of the world, currently, unbelieving Jews are dearly loved by God who orchestrates human salvation from sin. It's both and, it's not either or. Two sides, one story. One cover, and yet another set of pages are inside the book for the Jews' future salvation. God's choice for salvation appears in verse 28. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. This choice is called election. It may be a debated doctrine, it may be an unpopular doctrine, but it's a doctrine in God's word, undeniably. This election is God mercifully choosing certain persons on whom to decree his blessings through Christ by grace alone and never according to human merit never according to human merit. There was an elderly woman in Scotland. She lived in abject poverty. Many years earlier, her son had come to America and had not returned to his native land. One day, a friend visited the mother and inquired, does your son ever help you? Reluctantly, she admitted, no, but he writes me nice long letters and sends me interesting pictures. The visitor wanted to speak harshly of the son, but he held back and simply asked, May I see the pictures? The aged mother brought them out of a drawer, and to the friend's amazement, they were all sizable banknotes. Through the years, she had been living in needless poverty. To date, The precious Jewish people have been living like that Scottish senior citizen. They actually have blessing after blessing with Jesus Christ picture all over every blessing. But these blessings have been stored away, out of sight, uncashed in the drawers of their stubbornness and pride. Very sad. But verse 29, we go on, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable is a very strong word. It has everything to do with the donor and nothing to do with the recipient. Irrevocable means to the giver's unregretted gift. Irrevocable also means to the givers not to be repented of or withdrawn giving. One would hope that the man who gets down on one knee to propose marriage with a diamond ring does so in an irrevocable sense. That's what I did on Valentine's Day, 1983. And I was in the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex. We were both students at Dallas Seminary. And I invited Beth to marry me by way of a a dry cleaners rotating marquee. And I hid in the laundry hamper. And the guy that owned the store was running for Dallas City Council Politics. He phoned the three major networks in Dallas, ABC, NBC, and CBS. ABC and CBS came and covered our engagement on the 6 and 10 o'clock news of February. Uh, 14th We have the video footage to share with you if you want to have us over for dinner. <laughs> Didn't know I was going to say that, did you, dear? <laughs> one would hope that the person who, who proposes marriage, the man who proposes marriage, get down on one knee with a diamond ring, and it's an irrevocable offer. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to withdraw the offer. He has no regret proposing love and life together until death parts because of his confidence that he's been led to the right woman. He has no intention whatever to take back his marriage proposal or the diamond ring that symbolizes it. The fans, family, brothers and sisters, we, the body and the bride of Christ, the incredible body of Christ, we can revel, celebrate, enjoy the loveliness of the promised fact that our loving God's gift of eternal life and his call to salvation in Jesus Christ are both entirely certain and sure with no expiry date. There is no uncertainty. There is no maybe things will change. There is no I'm not sure I should offer all of you all of this to you. There is no, I can take back as fast as I gave it to you. No. God does not regret striking the Abrahamic covenant. God will not repent of it. God will not change his mind over it so that it alters his promise-keeping faithfulness to the Jews. And all this means that one day, one future day, one third of the world's total Jews will trust Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior because they're elect. They're called. They will mourn the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus at that time. They will all be saved close to the tribulation's closing because they'll turn to Christ in faith. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Fourth and last question. What was the purpose of Israel's blindness? What was the purpose of Israel's blindness? The purpose is this. A vast number of Gentile converts during the church age coming to saving faith being grafted in to the olive tree. What was the purpose of Israel's blindness, you and me getting saved if we're not Jewish? The conversions of all the Gentiles from the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, through the future rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now we look at verses 30 to 32 in our passage. For just as you were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their, the Jews, disobedience, so these also have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. Watch this verse. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Mercy, such a rich and gorgeous concept. In verse 31a, mercy is a noun. In verse 31b and verse 32, mercy is a verb. As a noun, mercy is the clemency of God to sinners, providing them salvation via the person and the work of Christ. Let me say that again. Mercy is a noun. It's the clemency of God towards sinners in providing them salvation through Christ. But mercy is also a verb. Mercy as a verb is the act of bringing help to the helpless and to the wretched. That's mercy. And friends, mercy is going to be written all over everyone who makes heaven. Grace and mercy are going to be written all over you and me in heaven. The olive tree is the illustration of Israel and salvation and mercy adorns this tree in that both Gentile branches and Jewish branches are part of this tree of salvation because of God's big enough mercy. Big enough mercy. And the big news is that although the Lord is entirely entitled to pour out his holy and just wrath on all of us as sinners, instead he consistently and creatively finds way to make his mercy flow to us. Bless him. The Lord flowed mercy to Gentiles out of Jewish disobedience. He flowed mercy to Jews as a result of his mercy flowing to Gentiles. He flows mercy to any disobedient, repentant, believing person based on the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. God's mercy is big enough. Verses 30 to 32 are a manifesto on mercy. Verse 32 states that God has shut up, some versions translate it bound, all in disobedience, that he might show mercy to all. What does this mean? The Greek word which is translated shut up or bound carries the idea of enclosed like a catch of fish is enclosed in a net. And although the Lord is never the author of our sin, the Lord allows us to sin and the Lord does allow us to hem ourselves in to the net of sin. And when this is so, we are like a catch of fish in that net. We can't get ourselves out of the net. The only way we're going to get out of the net is if the Lord in mercy cuts us out of the net. Bible teacher Schuler English told of a visit to the Orient by a man named Eugene Ormandy and the Philadelphia Orchestra. In one city, the local orchestra performed Beethoven's Fifth Symphony for the visiting musicians. According to reports, it was not done very well. At the end of the first movement, the host conductor passed the baton to Eugene Ormandy What a transformation. You would have thought he'd been conducting the local orchestra for years. As a member and the members of the Philadelphia Orchestra listened, they were impressed in a new way with Ormandy's talent and genius. They realized that they had begun, that they had begun to take him for granted, that they had lost sight of his greatness. As believers in Christ, we often fall into a similar pattern in our relationship with God. We take him and his marvelous attributes for granted. Because we are carried along daily by his unending stream of love and mercy, we begin to accept his goodness as an ordinary run-of-the-mill part of life. We might even forget what a great God he is. Mercy, mercy is truly magnificent. So please, please don't take God's mercy toward you or your family or your church family for granted. So little fish, are you swimming free in the enjoyment of your relationship with Jesus? It's because God's mercy towards you cuts you out of the net. Healthy fish, are you swimming strong in the grand purpose of bringing glory to the Lord? It's because heaven's mercy cut you out of the net you were hemmed in. Safe little fish, are you swimming thrilled to the good works which he's prepared beforehand that you should swim into? That's because the Lord in his mercy cut you out of the net that once hopelessly entrapped you, at least hopelessly for you yourself to get out of. Let's finish this glorious chapter by considering verses 33 to 36. These are some mountaintop verses in the New Testament. In fact, let's stand to pay them special respect. Let's stand. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who was first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Give God praise. Let's be seated again. Wonderful, 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 wonderful. And so the salvation olive tree stands the test of time because of its roots. Its roots are as strong and as stable as the person and the plan and the workings of God himself. The salvation olive tree is anchored by deep, developed, unchanging, solid roots, which are not susceptible to being uprooted or rotten. According to verse 33 these roots span God's riches, wisdom, knowledge, judgments and ways. And you could say that the roots are rooted in God's glory and furthermore these roots are perfectly comprehensive. They control and they utilize all things. Don't miss it these roots of our salvation control and utilize all things. How else can Romans 8:28 makes sense, which says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. A key phrase in there is to work together for good. Everything might not be good, but when Beth makes chocolate chip cookies, she puts eggs and milk and chocolate chips and flour and secret ingredients into her batter. And when I eat the batter, it tastes good. And when I eat the baked cookies, they taste excellent. But if she handed me a raw egg, part of the ingredients, and I ate it, it would taste awful. The salt, it would taste awful. But mixed together, all the experiences of our lives, God causes all the experiences of your life to be worked together for good. Because you love God and you are called according to his purpose. That's how strong and stable the roots of the salvation tree are. Verse 34 to 36 again. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who was first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Oh yes, because the roots of the salvation olive tree, because of those roots, They are nothing less than the person, plan, and workings of the Lord. And these roots include the riches of God, his wisdom, his knowledge, his judgment, and his ways. And these roots of the salvation olive tree are intertwined with God's incomparable glory. And these roots of the salvation olive tree are perfectly comprehensive in that they control all things, they utilize all things to bring us more into conformity of the image of Jesus. And therefore, verse 36 summarizes, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. You know what, if you get a hold of that, if you ponder that, If you discuss that, that will put you and your family into proper perspective. That will settle you and your loved ones down in fears and anxieties. That will ignite sustainable prayer and worship for a church family like ours. All things are from him and through him and to him. All things. Colossians 1, 15 to 18 presents the very same truths. Listen. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him... All things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. All those personal pronouns referring to Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Is he Lord of your life? Is he the Lord of your life? It's a rather simple question to answer. Is he the Lord of your life? If you say no to him on anything, he's not the Lord of your life. If you say no to Jesus in anything, he's not yet the Lord of your life. This has been a weighty sermon, as weighty as the depth of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God, as weighty as the unsearchable judgments of heaven, as weighty as the unfathomable ways of the Lord of all, as weighty as the unknowable mind of God, as weighty as the impossibility of ever adequately repaying Jesus for his cross work for us, as weighty as the providence of God, as weighty as the sovereignty of God, as weighty as the consummation of all things and all human history being tending toward the purposes of God. It's that weighty a sermon. And so, we ought never to be the same. We should not remain unchanged. And we should be slow to take on conformity to this world instead of rapid to take on conformity to Jesus. In closing, five takeaways, five so what's, Five points for life change. First one, don't be conceited. Verse 25, I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation. Church, don't be wise in your own estimation. Second, see the big picture. Verse 28. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. See the big picture. Enemies can be used of God to affect his purposes in lives. See the big picture. Third takeaway, evangelize until we can't. One of the things that Satan would love you to be lulled into is a sense of complacency and procrastination about sharing the gospel. You have a whole time. You, there's no limit to when you're going to work with that person. There's no limit to the time you sleep beside that spouse. There's no, there's no limit on any time. Oh, yes, there is. Oh, yes, there is. Oh, yes, there is. You could die. The person that needs Christ could die. Evangelize until we can't. Who is the last elect to salvation, Gentile? Will they trust Christ in Indonesia today? Will they trust Christ in Germany today? There is one that God has ordained and elected to be the last one. Evangelize until we can't. Watched a very exciting basketball game this afternoon, number three playing number six. Oklahoma played Kansas. Really, really good. Those players knew exactly how much time was on the clock, and if they didn't, their coach yelled it at them as they were dribbling up the court. Time was running down. You ever seen how much they can do in a basketball game with less than a second? It is amazing. The clock is going down, church. You don't know when Jesus is going to return. You don't know when you're going to go to glory. You don't know when the lost people that have been put in your life are going to die or move away. You don't know. So get on it. Evangelize until we can't. Number four, face up to your puny understanding. Face up to the fact what you understand is so puny. What I understand is so puny, it's remarkably puny. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. My understanding is puny and unfathomable his way. My understanding is puny. Ever think of a fly? <laughs> a housefly in the Sistine Chapel? He's crawling around on the paintings, just itching his wing on the columns. And there's these magnificent pieces of art. And he's oblivious to what's around him. He's just being a fly. Compared to the unfathomable depth of the riches and the knowledge of God. We're little houseflies. Do our best to understand the scriptures, apply ourselves, but understand when all is said and done, there's a whole eternity it will take to understand God in heaven. Last, major in mercy. Major in mercy. Verse 32, For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Question, if God's all about showing mercy to all, don't you think God is all about all of us showing mercy to everybody we meet? One respected commentator, Stifler, thinks that verse 32 is the climax of the whole book of Romans. For God has shut up all in disobedience, that he might show mercy to all. Mercy. Who could you show mercy to? Your child, your grandchild, your spouse, your coworker, someone in the body here at the church. Who could you show God's mercy to? To show God's mercy is to bear a family resemblance to a merciful God. And not to show mercy is not to have a family resemblance to a merciful God. I want you on the drive home to pray, who am I to show mercy to, and then do it. Oh, the bigness of God. Let's stand for prayer. We're but little flies in a metaphor, Lord. But you sent your only son to die, that we could have a relationship with you, that we could be forgiven and cleansed of sin, that we could be made new creatures, that we could seek your will and do your will for your glory. But Lord, how we look forward to the day when all that is unfathomable and beyond comprehending will be what we can enjoy in worship, love, praise, and honor to you forever and ever and ever. Amen. Lord, make us to be like your son. Make us to resemble him. Make us to be students of the word and evangelists at heart and dispensers of mercy, humble people, different people, godly people, and we pray this In Jesus' precious name, the head of the church's name, amen.